Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. I just like my hands to be free when I'm speaking, so. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for uh, your word, the Bible, which testifies to the word of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus came, uh, was enfleshed, he walked this earth, he showed us what it means to be truly human and what it means to be in a right relationship with you. Not only was he our great example, we thank you that he reconciled us to you and took the punishment for our sins and we pray Lord as we open your word this morning and look at a difficult passage uh, you would help us to understand what it is saying you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of communication we pray for Tim who's away with family today our pastor we pray that he'll have a relaxing time and a great time with family. Uh, we pray for the Ginn family yesterday, to, uh, after the wedding yesterday, Lord. We pray that they would have a restful day today. And I'd also like to pray for Trish Broadbent, Lord, who's finishing up technically her ministry at Bridgman Baptist this morning, speaking there. We pray that you would speak through her and that you would draw others nearer to yourself because of her ministry and service this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series looking at stories that disturb, and I must thank Tim when he gets back for giving me this passage. Uh, not being a pastor, sometimes you get to choose what passages you want to preach on and what others you want to kind of skip, because they are kind of disturbing. But nevertheless, I got landed with this one. Michael Gilliver is here next week. He will have a good message. He always puts a lot of time and prayer into uh, his messages as well, although he did think it was just a one-off until I told him, no, it's about disturbing passages, and here's your one, and uh, I think he's going to have a really busy week ahead of him. But we are looking at Matthew 25, 1 to 13 this morning, and of the title is, and the door was shut. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you've read anything by A.W. Tozer, if you can get hold of his books have a read him, they're fantastic. He was an influ influential American pastor and a brilliant Christian author. And he says about the return of Christ, when he returns is not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. Let me say that again. When he returns is not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. And at that time, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, their interchangeable expressions or phrases, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became uh, drowsy and fell asleep. 
At midnight, verse 6, a cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us uh, and you. And said, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, says Jesus in verse 13, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour, speaking of his return. Now, this parable is a warning to the disciples to watch and be ready for when Christ returns. And it sets among other parables which have a similar theme. Jesus said in his, uh, to his disciples, no one knows the day or the hour when the end will come. Not even me, said Jesus. I don't know that. Only the Father in heaven knows. Consequently, Jesus instructs his disciples to be vigilant in their waiting, to always be ready. And the reason for the vigilance is this, simply is the certainty of the event of his return. Be ready because it's happening, says Jesus. And the uncertainty of the time of its occurrence. In today's text, Jesus uses a typical Jewish wedding to illustrate the necessity of watching and waiting. But we're going to move away from the parable a little bit towards the end because the parable, I guess, is a platform for what Jesus is trying to say, but there's a much more deeper meaning to it than simply the details of the parable. But first of all, we need to understand something about Jewish marriage customs. A Jewish marriage took, took place over a long period of time and there were three stages to it. The first, when the couple was still very young, was an engagement, which was usually arranged by the parents. So that was step one. A few years later, there was a betrothal ceremony held at the bride's house. The couple exchanged vows and the groom gave the bride presents. And this period lasted for about one to two years. During this time, the bride was said to be betrothed to the man. And then there was the third stage. I told you it was a long period of time. The third stage, the marriage supper. Uh, it usually happened at night. The groom and his friends came to the bride's house. She and her friends would, be, would then accompany the groom and his mates back to the father's house or maybe to a large hall in which the marriage ceremony or the feast would take place and a contract was then signed. And that was the conclusion of the long engagement and marriage process. For the third marriage celebration stage, the groom came from any distance and there was no saying when he would arrive, day or night. Now, it was true before he arrived, 
he should have sent someone ahead of him who would tell everybody, he would shout, behold, the bridegroom or the groom is coming. But that can still happen at any time. So the bridal party have to be ready to go out and meet him in the streets. And then they accompany him back to usually his parents or to a hall or some place like that. And since he was the supremely honoured guest, to not welcome him when he did arrive was a serious breach of manners. When the bridegroom has arrived, all the guests move to the ceremony and festivities. As I said, usually at the groom's house or at some kind of hall. But then the door, once all the guests were in, the door was shut. It was closed to latecomers or uninvited guests. In the parable, there are ten virgins awaiting the arrival of the groom. Now, the translation for the Greek word there can just mean maidens. It simply means, probably means, no more than they were young, unmarried women, friends either of the bride or the groom. And typically, they would have lamps that would light the way at night in case the groom arrived then. And the lamps were rags soaked in oil, but the oil needed to be replenished. So you should have had a jar of oil, extra oil there with you. Five of the women were wise and were prepared uh, no matter when the groom arrived. Five were foolish and let their oil run down and were caught unprepared. They turned to the others, give us some of yours. Uh, no, you need to go and find some. The person selling oil, you come in the middle of the night, people knocking on your doors looking for oil. It might have been a common thing. Now, I thought at that point, I thought, are these ladies being selfish? Why didn't they share some of their oil with those who didn't have any? Should they have been kinder to those without and shared what they had? But the impression we get from the passage is that there's not actually enough. And so it would have been silly to exclude, you know, for them to share their oil and then everyone ends up being excluded from the feast because everyone has to go and find extra oil. And so those without go and search for more oil. And while they sought to remedy their dilemma... The door was shut, shut. The groom arrives, the ceremony begins, the door is closed. And sometime later they come up to the ceremony, Sir, sir, they say, using a form of address, open up for us. And far from opening as requested, the groom utters the words that make it clear that they will firmly be excluded from this party. In response, the groom says, truly, I tell you, truly, I tell you. Whenever we see those words, it's a solemn beginning and emphasizes that what follows is extremely important. Truly, I tell you. And then he gives us the key statement, verse 12, I don't know you. I don't know you. And in verse 13, Jesus hammers home the lesson, watch therefore, because you know neither the day nor the hour, the kingdom and all its fullness will arrive. 
Although we enjoy aspects of God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven now, in terms of God's reign in our hearts and in the reign in the church or sovereignty over the church in a corporate sense, there is a point in time where the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven will come in all its fullness, a consummation of God's work, and it'll be accomplished here on earth. So keep watch, said Jesus. Having read this parable, we could argue that it's, it's pretty cruel. Young ladies who seem to be invited guests are left out. But it relates really to an incident, I guess, which must have been commonplace in Jesus' time and which simply reflects everyday life and customs of the people among whom he lived and taught. So what's this parable all about? Like so many of Jesus' parables, there's kind of a local immediate application and then there is a wider universal meaning to it. The more local or immediate application from what I've read through the commentaries and some of the the best scholars around on the Gospel of Matthew... Some actually understand this parable to be about the nation of Israel or the Jews. And they're saying that this is directed against the Jews. They were the chosen people. Their whole history should have been preparation for the coming of the Son of God. They ought to have been prepared for him when he finally arrived. Instead, only a few received him. And these few, I guess, are illustrated by the five who are prepared. Now, those who hold to this application or this interpretation do so because the church in Paul's writings is referred to as the bride, right? And so people think, I think it actually relates then to something else. And perhaps it's relating to Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, particularly the end of the Old Testament, you see that Israel is kind of divided in two. There are those who have rejected the Son when he arrives and those who have received him. And it kind of, or those who believe in God and those who kind of don't. And they're called kind of, you have this portion within Israel who are the faithful remnant they're spoken of. And some people think, well, I think this refers to the virgins or the young ladies, actually refers to Israel where there are a few people who have accepted Jesus and there are those who haven't and those who haven't have been, even though they are the chosen nation that will be left out uh, in the end. They will be shut out. So some say it's a dramatic form of the tragedy and adverse consequence of a chosen nation's rejection of Jesus. And many will be shut out of the kingdom. I can see where they're going with that interpretation, but I think there's actually a more universal or wider meaning to it. And most commentators actually say Jesus is speaking here as in this entire section to the disciples. And thus this parable, like the others in the section, should also serve as a warning to the church. Let me say, first of all, the parable is not about losing one's salvation. 
Right? It's not about losing your salvation. It's not about being a Christian and going along and in the last minute you do something wrong and therefore you are excluded. This text is not to create uncertainty and doubt in the heart of a Christian. It's not seeking to rob you of your assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. But it's seeking, I think, to warn those who have a false confidence. In the sentence in verse 12 where Jesus says, uh, where the groom says, I don't know you, the verb to know is in the perfect tense, which means the action of not knowing has taken place in the past, not on the doorstep of the ceremony. It's happened in the past, and the consequences of not knowing that person continues. And if we interpret the wedding as an illustration of the church in Christ's return, it means that the five ladies were never known in the first place. We would say they never were saved in the first place to somehow lose their salvation or their place at the wedding feast. Note that they knock on the door and say, Lord, Lord. The phraseology there is very similar to last week's parable. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus responds, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's scary. That's scary. That's the jolting verse for me. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. If we think that that, that verse applies here as well, which I think it does, then he never knew them, so they were never saved to begin with. They were never on the guest list, so to speak. I don't know about you, but when I'm invited to weddings, I'm a fairly anxious person. Most people don't know that, but I'm quite anxious under the surface. And when I get invited to a wedding, when I was a pastor, I used to get invited to so many weddings. It was lovely, but I did get tired of them. But whenever I go to a wedding and I'm invited to the reception, I don't know about you, but as soon as I can get into that reception hall, the first thing I do is look for my name. Does anyone else do that? I go looking for my name. I leave my wife. She can do what she wants. She'll be talking to somebody. I need to know that I have a place at the table. Jesus is warning us in this parable that there will actually be people who look like Christians, who associate with Christians, and who may even think they are Christians. And they will be shocked to learn that they are not at the return of the Lord, just as in Jesus' time. It's possible to be involved in the church and to be associated with Christians and yet not know Jesus or be known by him. Where one's experience of Christianity is purely religious practices. By that I mean church attendance, or outward conformity to what Christians now call churchianity. 
You can be associated with these things. However, however, what this parable clearly teaches us is that you cannot be saved by association. You can do these things without knowing Jesus Christ. The key verse is verse 12. I don't know you. So the key question is, what does it mean to know Jesus and be known by him? That's the key question. John 10, 27, verse 30, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In the shadow of Calvary, in John, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus defines what eternal life is. Now this is eternal life in his prayer, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Greek word to know is a relational word that implies a growing personal relationship. Being a Christian isn't simply about accepting some facts in the past, you know, a kind of knowledge that is just this transaction. That's really important, but it's more than that. It's a kind of knowledge that's actually gained through experience. To know is a Greek word used in connection with God to describe an intimate, experiential, growing knowledge of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be very, very careful, I think, even, particularly as evangelical Christians, that we don't think of following Christ as a mere transaction a mere assent to certain facts, even though those facts are vitally important. If we think salvation is only some singular event, a purely intellectual moment, a moment in time transaction, is that really indicative of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ? And this, I think, is the emphasis of the passage. The loss is not being kept out of the ceremony. That's not the tragic thing. The tragic point is the absence of being known by the groom. That's the tragedy of the parable. In February of 23, 23rd of February, 1992, I got a good news Bible knelt down beside my bed, turned to the back of it, read the sinner's prayer, repented of my sins, put my faith in Jesus Christ, and signed on the dotted line. It was an essential moment for me. It was a time that Christians referred to, uh, referred to as being born again. It was a really important time for me. But I wasn't just making a one-off commitment and then moving on. 
part of that was asking Jesus to come into my life to establish a relationship with me. There's a moment in time where all believers walk through that gate for the first time. And that is probably the best moment in your life. But there's a path beyond the gate. A path disciples take. A path that not only of challenges, but we know because Jesus said it's hard, for some is even persecution. But a path of knowing a path of increasing intimate knowledge of sheep knowing their shepherd's voice and following him along the path. Eternal life, says Jesus, is to know God. That's what it's about. That's what true life is supposed to be in relationship with God here and into eternity. It is about a growing, intimate, experiential knowledge that will stretch on forever. Always learning. Always more to learn. And this personal relationship with Jesus will manifest itself in every aspect of our lives. We see this connection in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Listen to what it says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. To varying degrees throughout your life as a Christian, but in a real sense, you should see the presence of these kinds of things, an overwhelming gratitude for the forgiveness we have in Christ, a desire to know him more and to know him personally. We should see the fruit of the Spirit, given in Galatians chapter 5, beginning to be demonstrated in our life, particularly love. We should see a desire to imitate Jesus' life and to imitate and live his values. We should see a confidence and desire to freely share that good news with others, not because we want something from them, but we want them to have the gift that we've been given. And we should also see a consistent looking for his coming. I'm looking forward to his arrival. And all this other rubbish that's intermingled with beauty is done away with and the beauty shines through. That's what I'm looking forward to. And some of those things, as I said, you'll see in your life to varying degrees at varying times. But those kinds of things are very personal they're not borrowed, just like the parable lays down that there are certain things which cannot be borrowed. The oil could not be borrowed in the moment of necessity. And a saving relational faith cannot be borrowed, inherited or willed to somebody else. Be ready for Christ's return ultimately involves one thing. 
and that is a saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about being born again, entering the gate and continuing that relationship. And all other Christian activities should flow from this. I don't know if I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it, I love this illustration. There's an old story about a priest who was celebrating his 50th anniversary for his ordination. And he actually invited his good friend, a famous actor, Richard Burton, to come and to recite his favourite psalm, Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. And Richard Burton, the actor, said, I'll agree to do this on one condition. You recite it too, after me. At the appointed time, Richard Burton, he's old now. I don't know if he's even still alive, but anyway... He stood and he proclaimed the popular psalm with such oracle skills and mastery that the congregation immediately applauded. And then this humble pastor stood up and began to recite from the heart this beloved psalm. And after he had finished, uh, his not nearly so professional uh, recitation, the congregation was silent. They were in awe. And there were tears rolling down people's faces. Someone in the front pew with Richard Burton leaned over and asked him, why did people loudly applaud you? And yet when he said it, they were silently moved by the pastor. And Burton replied, well, that's easy. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. The question is, do you know the shepherd? Do you know the shepherd? Philippians 3, 8, and I'll finish with this verse. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, infinite value, surpassing excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Yes, there are wonderful things in life, there are valuable things in this life, but in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, they are all insignificant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that we can know you personally. Thank you that we can go through this life having you beside us as a comforter, a counsellor, a friend, a saviour, and a king. For those of us here, Lord, who don't have that personal connection, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak into their hearts and lives today. And Lord, help us as Christians to put effort into time and time into making that relationship all that it can be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.